So let's begin with a New Year's course on Hebrews in Core Studies. The goal of this one will be to focus on the core of Hebrews, which is chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and even half of 10. We'll try to get through it. And the theme of this section, if you've ever read Hebrews and you're familiar with it, is it's a great long discussion on the great high priest, Jesus as the great high priest. So that's really the theme of what this will be. We're going to be talking about Jesus, the great high priest, because that's what Hebrews talks about in these chapters. In the first four chapters, he didn't mention the great high priest very often, but that will be the overriding theme of this section of Hebrews. Before I begin, let me pray. God, please be with us this morning and let these words be your words. Let what is we learn be from your Holy Spirit and he asks that you just encourage us and strengthen us, enable me and all of us to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Right. So, with that being said, the great high priest's theme in Hebrews, it actually doesn't begin in chapter 5. There's hints of it in the first four chapters. So, I'm going to go over the first hints, the hints that show up. The first time that this idea of Jesus as a high priest shows up is actually in chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verses, well, all of chapter 1, is a, is the author of Hebrews talking about Jesus, the Son of God, and it focuses on his divinity, on the fact that he is truly God, fully God. But he did throw a little phrase in there, just one little phrase, that suggested he was going to go somewhere that no one else in Scripture had ever gone before. Because no other book describes Jesus as a high priest, except for this one. This is Hebrews' unique contribution to the theology of the Bible, considering Jesus as a high priest. So let me just read the first four verses, just to show you in chapter 1 how it starts. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke... To our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Or I would prefer the translation in son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is a spectacular divine Description of Jesus. Those are all descriptions of God. Only God can do those things that I just listed. But then, the after it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power, it says this little phrase here. After making purification for sins. <clears throat> after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand the majesty on high. Now that little phrase 
after he made purification for sins is unique in all of Scripture. That's never been described to Jesus before. And it's a very unique way. It's the author's unique way of describing the work Jesus did while he was here on earth on the cross. Paul never described it this way. But he's saying something unique here. He's saying he did something that he calls he made purification for sins. Paul never said that. No other author in the New Testament said that. But it's a little hint. It's a hint that this is, this is another way of thinking about Jesus that he's going to tell us about. Now in the Old Testament, it's also a hint. Priests could make purification for sins. If you read in Leviticus, I've just got one scripture listed there, 1630, that... The sacrifices that the priests were commanded to do, God would actually use them to cleanse people from their sin or from particular types of sin. So that was, they're the only other people who've ever been able to purify sins. So when he says this, make purification for sins, it's just a hint. You're talking priestly stuff here. And after he was made a priest, after he did the priestly work, he sits down at the right hand of God and goes on through chapters 1 and 2 talking about how awesome Jesus is as God. And also chapter 2 is what he did as man. So chapters 1 and 2, he's not talking about priestly functions mostly. He's, he's talking about God divine and God, God the, the God-man. He's talking about God as Jesus is God and Jesus is man. That's what he's talking about. Now, in but at the very end of chapter 2, there's a couple verses that he says that suddenly go priest on us again. So after he's been talking about Jesus coming and suffering and dying and rescuing the company of brothers and making basically the church, he says this curiously at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. That's the first mention of this idea explicitly. <clears throat> he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's pure priestly language right there. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's like, really? Now, the original recipients of this letter would never have heard this before because Paul didn't talk about this. And Hebrews was written after Paul. Paul was executed and died. And the author of Hebrews most likely was one who knew Paul well and was kind of like a successor to Paul, part of his team. So his, his theology actually complements Paul's theology perfectly. He just uses different phrases like purification for sins. Jesus is a high priest. And he throws this little statement in there that Jesus had to be made like his brothers so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest who can propitiate the sins of the people 
Now, if you, let's just, I've got to stop and look at these, I, these things he just said. Because these are all unique too. He just said he had to be a merciful high priest. Now I did a little study on the Old Testament. Were there any other merciful high priest? Is the word used of any priest, not just a high priest in the Old Testament. And what I saw as I went through the usages of this word in the Old Testament is mercy was never attributed to a priest. Ever. Mercy is only attributed to God. God's the only one who can provide mercy in Old Testament terms. Because God's the one whom we've offended, and he's the one that has, if anyone's going to have mercy, it's going to be the one who has no sin, the one who makes all the rules, the one who governs, it's God. And every use of the word mercy in the Old Testament is a either a description of God showing mercy to his people, or people crying out to God, please show mercy to us. So mercy is really a God word in the Old Testament. And here, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made a merciful high priest. A priest who showed mercy. That's unique, because priests couldn't show mercy, because priests were beset with weaknesses. Priests needed mercy. They were sinners. This priest is going to be one who dispenses mercy. Unique. And then the second description of this priest Faithful, faithful high priest. No priest in the Old Testament was ever called faithful. Every one of them had their flaws. Every one of them fell. Every one of them sinned. Every one of them needed God's mercy because they were not faithful. I went over this last year when we went through chapters 3 and 4, but... This word faithful is actually the same word in Greek that is translated faith later in Hebrews in the famous chapter 11. By faith, so Abraham did this. By faith, Moses did that. By faith, by faith, by faith. It's actually the same Greek word. A priest who's faithful. Now the the word is translated faithful here because in the, in the context, the idea isn't that Jesus had faith. It's, it's the idea that he had faith over a long period of time. And that's, that, that's when we start calling faith faithful. If you have faith, the idea of faith in our minds is it's an instantaneous, you just have faith in God at the moment. Well, actually, if you have faith in the God in every moment, from the moment you begin to the moment you die, you're faithful. That's what faithful implies. You're faithful for the long haul. And no priest in the Old Testament was faithful for the long haul. None. I mean, the very first high priest was Aaron. He was declared to be the high priest after... The golden calf incident, which he led. He's the one that built the golden calf. And God said, 
you're going to be my first high priest. He didn't say, you're faithful, because he certainly wasn't. And he also goes on and he explicitly sins in many other ways. He's not faithful. No high priest is faithful. No priest is faithful until this one. Hebrews says, this one is a faithful high priest. And then the third characteristic that's unique that's stated here in Hebrews 2.17 is, this particular priest can make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means he can wipe out the sins entirely, make them go away, propitiate. It also has to do with turning away the wrath of God because of your sin. That's a phrase that's never, ever applied to any priest in the Old Testament either because none of those sacrifices could take away sins. Hebrews will actually explicitly say that later on. They couldn't truly take away sins. But this priest, the one described in Hebrews, can. So this is a very, very, very special high priest unlike any priest we've ever seen. He's a merciful high priest, he's a faithful high priest, and he can propitiate the sins of the people like no other. There's one text in the Old Testament, I see my notes here, about the faithful high priest. 1 Samuel 2.25, I've got to read this, because... <laughs> that makes the point about the coming of Jesus. It's an unexpected prophecy of Jesus. I had forgotten it was there. Now the story in 1 Samuel, it's when Samuel is on the rise and he's trained by a high priest named Eli who has, who's not a very good priest himself. He's not, he raises Samuel, but he's got his flaws. And one of his biggest flaws is his son's who are to be the priests in his place, are evil men. And God determines to wipe them out justly because they're evil men and they shouldn't be in the position of priesthood. So what he does in 1 Samuel 2.25, I'll just read a couple verses for context, starting in 2.22. Now Eli, who was the high priest, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's why they're not, they're not very good high priests. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of you your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Let's see. Am I there yet? I guess I have the wrong reference. It's not showing up. Okay. I'll have to get back on that one. 
Yeah, I got the wrong reference. But it was talking about God's going to raise up a faithful high priest. It's what I was looking for, and I, it's not there. Instead of these guys, he's going to raise up a faithful high priest, and the faithful high priest is Jesus. How about verse 35? Okay. Thank you. Yes. That's where I'm looking. It's what? 35. Change the notes to 35. Look at 35. 235. The Lord rejects Eli's household. 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and he's, he's The Lord is saying, your two sons shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And they do. And actually Eli dies that same day. It's the day that the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. And they all die. And there's verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That's the messianic promise of the great high priest right there in 1 Samuel 2.35. Okay? So, good. We'll fix the notes there. Thank you. All right. So there we go. Hebrews 2.17 shows up and lays out this amazing description of Jesus as a high priest in a way no other one has ever been a high priest. And then a couple verses later in chapter 3, verse 1. And by the way, chapter 3, just for... The structure of Hebrews. Chapter 1 and 2 are the introduction of Hebrews. Chapters 3 through 12 are the main body. That's the main letter of Hebrews. So chapter 3 verse 1 is the start of the letter after the introduction. 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews sets it all up. Chapter 3 is where it begins. Because he actually addresses, if you, if you see how it begins, he says he's addressing the holy brothers. He's for the first time, he's actually talking to the people he's writing to. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful. There's the faithful word again. To him who appointed him, just as Moses was. And there's the next usage of the word high priest. And interestingly, it's in command language. That's a imperative. That's not, that's not an invitation. <laughs> this is the imperative of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. That's actually the primary imperative of Hebrews. That idea, that command is repeated four times. I actually listed them there. I won't go over all of them. You can look some of them up where he says, consider Jesus. Think about him. I think the NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus, which is a good way of communicating. This is command language. This is not invitation. Hey, come with me and let's think about Jesus for a little bit. No, it's actually fix your thoughts on him. And 
Keep your thoughts fixed on him. From now and forever. Don't stop considering Jesus. That's the primary command of Hebrews. But what does he tell his holy brothers to do? Specifically, he says, think of Jesus as an apostle, number one, and as a high priest, number two, high priest of our confession. And I would submit to you that the first four chapters of Hebrews are primarily concerned with teaching us how to consider Jesus as an apostle. And 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are teaching us how to consider Jesus as a high priest. So this command is the command of the book, and it kind of divides the book up into there's going to be two main things he's trying to show. That Jesus is the apostle, and that was actually what we talked about last year. The apostle speaks the word. He brings the word, and people must respond to it. And if they don't, like the uh, Israelites of old, their bodies fall in the wilderness. You either obey the apostle or you are judged for not obeying him. So the apostle is the one who brings the word. The priest is the one who brings the mercy. It's the same guy who does both, Jesus. Jesus brings the word. And what does that word do? Well, it does what... I'll just read Hebrews 4.12, this famous one. Right before our section, 4.12. For the word of God, this is how the apostle section of Hebrews ends. For the word of God, the apostolic word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's the scripture we've memorized and loved, but we like to leave verse 13 off. 13 is actually part of the same sentence. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So this word is able to cut to your heart, discern the stuff in your heart that's not right, expose you to him who we must give account. So what the apostle, the apostolic word of Jesus does is it cuts us to the quick, lays us bare, And it reveals our need for God's mercy. It reveals our need for the great high priest. The merciful, faithful, propitiating high priest. The apostle, Jesus the apostle, exposes the need for Jesus, the high priest. And right after he says that in verse 13, the great high priest discussion begins. Starting right there in Hebrews 4.14, here comes the word. Since then we have a great high priest. After this apostolic word is 
exposed us and laid us bare, bring the high priest in. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are lovely verses. I hope you've memorized them, especially, well, all three of them. They're spectacular verses. They're amazing verses. But do keep in mind, they're commands. Two of them are commands. The first command is one that he's already kind of said a few times. He's just putting it in high priestly language. Let us hold fast our confession. Okay? That's a command. Hold fast our confession. And that word confession has already shown up a few times. It was in the original command in 3.1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Confession is the truth, the word of truth about Jesus. Hold fast to that confession. It's a command. Hold fast. We have this great high priest. Now hold fast to the confession that we have taught, that we know from the word of God about Jesus. Hold fast. I've listed a couple other places where that confession word and those, this idea shows up, mostly from last, uh, well, chapter 3. Um, I believe it's chapter 3, 8 and 3.14. Also talk about holding fast to a confession of sorts. So three one talked about it. Consider Jesus the apostle of our confession. 3.8 and 3.14 also say hold fast. I'll read 3.8 and 3.14 for us. It's not 3.8, is it? It's 3.6. Did I get that wrong? Yeah, it's 3.6, sorry. Change that one to 3.6, not 3.8. 3.6, But Christ is faithful, once again, over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Okay? There's the holding fast, there's Christ the faithful, in this case, considering the apostle, he's a faithful apostle over God's house, he's also a faithful high priest. And there's the, if we are among those who hold fast, we're his house. We belong to him. We're in his family, okay? So the evidence that we are part of God's family and in his house is we hold fast to this confession. So that's what 3.6 says. 3.14 says it again in slightly different languages. language. 3.14 says, for we have come to share in Christ, which is another way of saying we're in the house. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So there it is again, hold this confidence. But this time it says to the end. It's not, it's a, it's not a one-time thing. It's a, you hear the confession, you hold fast to it, firm to the end. End, and then we have the explicit command that we're talking about right now in 4.15. Hold fast this confession. And the reason we can do that is we have a great high priest. 
He's going to start explaining that. It's not clear necessarily to these, the readers. of This high priest language is new to them, and they're like, really? Jesus is a high priest. You're going to have to explain that one. Because the idea we have of priests in the Old Testament is not very Jesus-like. Aaron's not very good. Eli's not very good. His sons are terrible. In fact, the priests that we see in Jerusalem right now are not very good. You know, they killed Jesus. Why are you calling him one of them? Well, he's going to explain that he's a much better high priest. He's a great one. He's a faithful one. He's a merciful one. He's the one who propitiates sin. Hold fast. And then, and then verse 16, there's the other command. This is a command too. And this is one I know we all love to quote and believe and pray. Let us then with confidence... Draw near. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. That's the command. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy, and there's the word mercy. We may receive mercy from this faithful high priest and find grace to help in time of need. Command. Hold fast the confession and then act upon the confession and draw near to him. As a high priest. Now, after he says that command, he's done with commands for a while. From now on, he's going to talk about how Jesus is a high priest. It's all about Jesus. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and most of ten. Half of half of ten. It's entirely about Jesus. There's no more commands until he's done making his case for us to see Jesus as a great high priest and to fix our eyes on him and to hold fast to him and to draw near to him. And once he's done with all that, I just want to show you where we're going, where I hope to be in five weeks. This is 1022. After he's talked about Jesus and he's made his case, his irrefutable case that this Jesus is truly the great high priest. Notice what he does. I'll start in 21. 10.21 And since we have a great priest over the house of God, this all sounds familiar, let us draw near with a true heart full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He repeats the command. The same command. After I told you at the beginning, draw near, and now here's everything you need to know about Jesus, why you can draw near. Now draw near. So he ends the great high priest discussion with the same command. Let us draw near. And then look at the next verse. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He repeats the other command too. So he brackets the entire high priest discussion with these two great commands. Let us hold fast. Let us draw near. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Awesome, great high priest. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And then the rest of Hebrews is essentially a bunch of commands, a lot of commands, and a lot of examples of how to follow and take this knowledge of the great high priest and 
essentially run with endurance the race set before us. So this is the meat of Hebrews here, okay? Great high priest, all set up for us. And now, I'm going to get into the first ten verses of verse five, of chapter 5. And that's all I intend to get through. And it looks like I've got plenty of time to work with, so... <laughs> um, So after he's gone all through that, he's going to begin his case. How can we think of Jesus as a high priest? Oh, by the way, one of the uh, surprising things of Hebrews 4.16 is the statement of a throne. Mm-hmm. High priests don't sit on a throne. Where'd you get that one from? You know, it's, it's like, that's not... Priests aren't kings. They don't sit on thrones. And he says, draw near to the throne. That, that, that might have been a surprise to the original hearers. What? And like I said, he, they don't provide mercy. They're definitely not faithful. And you want me to consider Jesus one of them? So he's going to start making his case. Let me get to five. And he's going to explain. He's going to begin with, okay, let's start thinking about high priests in the Old Testament in ways that might make sense to you, that might start to help you see Jesus as a high priest. I know you're confused right now. For every high priest, chapter 5, verse 1, chosen, is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It says a lot in that verse about what is required. What, what are the qualifications for a high priest, basically? What's expected of a high priest? Number one, has to be a man, okay? High priests are men, they're humans, and they're male humans, but in this case, has to be a man. Number two, they're appointed to act on behalf of man. They're appointed by not themselves, and it actually says that clearly in verse 4, a little bit further. Verse 4 says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. If you want to read about the first high priest being called, I believe it's Leviticus, not Leviticus, Exodus uh, 28, I believe. Just if you want to see, God tells Moses, take Aaron and his sons and make them priests. And he says it over and over again, actually. That's just the first time, but he says it over and over again. God's saying, I've chosen Aaron and his sons. Yeah, the guy who just built the golden calf. Yes, that's him. He's the high priest and his sons. It's God who sets them up, okay? They didn't just vote. They didn't promote themselves. The people didn't vote on it. It was God. So the high priest is a man appointed by God and he's appointed on behalf of men. He's appointed to approach God on behalf of men. And that's in relation to God, it says there in our 
ESVs is what I'm using here. He's appointed as a, it doesn't use the word here, but you will later in a couple of chapters. He's, he's appointed to be like a mediator, like a go-between, between man and God. He's supposed to stand between man and God and represent the man behind him as he's doing service for God. Now, it's interesting, God appointed him to do something, but he's a representative of the men, and he's, he's called to do things on behalf of men, of the people behind him. And it says, in relation to God, I made a note here that that, in relation to God, is... If you read other translations, you'll get other statements there, because that word is actually just the preposition towards. Towards God is literally what it says, which is like, well, that's weird. What's towards God mean? He's, he's appointed on behalf of men towards God. And the idea is... He's facing God, he's looking at God, and he's doing God's bidding. He's Everything he's doing is for God's, you could even say God's benefit. That's actually, the word could mean that as well. Like, this whole high priest thing is God's idea. He's picked the man to be a mediator for the people, and he's serving God on behalf of them for the benefit of God. <laughs> it's interesting. For their benefit, for his benefit, says, "Well, why would he care about relating to these sinful men?" Uh, think about that. That means God actually has some. He's the one initiating this. That, that means he's he's the one wanting relationship with these sinful men, and he's creating a means by which he can relate to these sinful men by appointing one of them as a high priest who faces him and represents them for him. So he can do something that enables him to have relationship with those sinful men. That's, that's the idea. Now, Aaron didn't do a very good job of it. And none of his sons did. But what if Aaron and his sons were just a picture of what God was intending to do in the future? They were just foreshadowing was God's way of saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm trying to reach you guys. You guys aren't, you're not good mediators, but I'm, I'm showing you, this is how God comes and dwells among men. He has to have a mediator. And if you also read in Exodus, he actually commands Moses to build a house where God's going to sit in a little tent and the, the place he sits is called the mercy seat, the seat of mercy, because God wants to dispense mercy to the people. But only one guy, the, the high priest, can go in there only once a year with blood not his own and do business with God so God can dwell with men. It's entirely a God-initiated thing. Now that man is... And he can only do it one day a year, the Day of Atonement. And when he does, it says here in 5, 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Well, I'll, I'll, verse 2. 
he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He's a sinner. And because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for the people. So he's coming in with blood for himself, and he's coming in with blood for everybody else. And God's accepting it, at least symbolically, and he's making a way for him to have relationship with his people through the sacrifice of animals. So that's kind of what the priest did in the Old Testament. And, and the author is telling us that's, those are the qualifications. That's, that's what a priest does. And I listed them all there for you. Um, must be a man appointed by God, acts on behalf of man, in relation to God, meaning towards God, facing God for God's purposes. He deals gently with those whom he represents. And he's beset with weakness. Uh, Is that a qualification? Not necessarily a qualification. It's it's something that God would rather they not be, but they are. However, he he says beset with weaknesses because he's going to make a point here about Jesus soon. He's just setting it up. Those are all the essential things that the high priests of the Old Testament were. And now, in verse 5 through 10, he's going to say, okay, now let's look at Jesus and see how he meets these qualifications. See how he, he fulfills them. And he starts in verse 5, so also Christ, and he starts with the, with the qualification of who picked him. He did not exalt himself, but was appointed by him. So God appointed Jesus to be a high priest. And the original readers might have said, what? Where? And he said, oh yeah, look at the Psalms. And he quotes Psalm 2. First he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now that doesn't sound like priestly language. In fact, it's not. He's already quoted that earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 6, I believe, or 5. This is a requote of what he's already said. Um, <clears throat> 1, 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then here we are in 5, 5, or 6, 5, 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's already made the case that Jesus was declared to be a son in Psalm 2. And it's interesting that he's using that terminology right now. We're talking about priests, right? What does this have to do with the son? Well, think of it this way. The son, we know from Hebrews chapter 1 and from Psalm 2, that God enthroned his son. Not as a high priest in Psalm 2. He enthroned him. I'll read, I'll read the applicable portions of Psalm 2. A little for context. Psalm 2, if you read it as a Christian, you know it's talking about Jesus. And I'll start in two, Psalm 2, 5. 
uh, no, 2.6, 2.6. As for me, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage at the ends of the earth, your possession. Psalm 2 is talking about when God installed Jesus to be the king, the son, at his right hand. And the author of Hebrews actually says in chapter 1 that that's what happened in verse, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. So he makes purification for sins, goes to heaven as a man, and is enthroned as the son, as the, not just God the son, but Jesus, the Son of God. Now he's the man, God-man, Son. He's reigning as a man up there. Um, Jesus, the Son of God. So he's referring to this as saying, I've already told you who the Son is, right? It's Jesus, enthroned at the right hand. So what does that have to do with him being a high priest? That doesn't say anything about being a priest. It says he's a king, not a priest, He's, he's making the point because you are my son. Who's the son? Jesus is the son. So let's go to another psalm that says the same thing differently. He quotes that in the next verse, Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110, he's, he's already quoted that one as well back in chapter 1 to make the case that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God. I'll read that from Psalm 110. I'll read that again to you because he doesn't quote verse 1 from Psalm 110 here. He quotes verse 4 instead. Psalm 110 says this. Sounds like Psalm 2. The Lord says to my Lord, this is verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So it's saying the same thing Psalm 2 did. The Lord is enthroning His Son here at His right hand. And, and the author of Hebrews connected these two verses and said, See, Jesus is at the right hand now. He's ruling and reigning. And that's what chapter 1 was all about. Ruling and reigning at the right hand. And then, and then, the psalm goes on. It says, The Lord sends... I'm going to read a couple more verses of it. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies talking about this son at the right hand your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours you're not going to age you're now an eternal man who will live forever verse 4 this is what is being quoted here in chapter 5 the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There it is. So God, when Jesus took his seat and became the king, the son of God, he also was declared a priest. So he became a priest when he took his seat. That's when his priesthood was declared, according to Hebrews 5, quoting from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. He's saying, it was not me who made this up. Read the Psalms. It's right there, guys. 
God said to his son at the right hand, you are a priest. After the order of Melchizedek. And I'll leave the Melchizedek part for a future session because he actually spends chapter 7 talking about that. He's quoting the text. Jesus is not just only the enthroned son. He is this priest. God said he was a priest. God made him a priest. And he swore it. The word swear matters too. He's going to get to that later on. He's going to explain why it's important that God swore you're a priest. Not right now. All right. So those are those two verses. And then the next 7, 8, 9, 10. In the days of his flesh. Okay, he's a man. Those words kind of... We know he's a man. Just making it clear. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, his respect of God, his fear of God, actually. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, according to Psalm 110. So these verses point at the other qualifications for Jesus. And if you look down my notes, I've already kind of touched on the sonship. You can imagine Jesus is a man seated at the right hand. He's facing God so that Facing of God is there. He's with God, facing him like the priests of the Old Testament were facing God in the the mercy seat. He's acting on behalf of men because he's the source of eternal salvation for these men. He doesn't explain exactly how that works yet. He's just saying he saves them somehow. He'll get to that. But here, what's really interesting about these verses is he's able to deal gently with those whom he represents. He's able to deal gently because he's suffering. And he knows what it's like to be a man. In fact, <laughs> these verses may surprise you, but he's saying that he learned, he, he was made perfect. He was made perfect. He learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, he wasn't obeying before. And he was made perfect through this process. I mean, he wasn't perfect before. Well, yeah. As God, the Son, he was perfect. And he was totally obedient. But what's going on here? He's now God, man. He's God, the man. And he has to learn how to be obedient as a man. And as he's doing that, as he's a man, he's experiencing suffering every step of the way, just like we do. Not just at the end of his life, when he was clearly suffering and tasting death for everyone. But every step of the way, 
all the little sufferings that men experience, men and women experience, he experienced them. But he did it differently and he did it better than us. Because when, we're, when we suffer, when we're tempted in those sufferings, we tend to sin. We just give up and charge God, disobey God, forget God, backslap God or try to. That's how we respond to suffering. Jesus did it different. Although he suffered, he never once sinned. He always did it the right way. And he experienced all those temptations we experience. But he did it the hard way. We give in to sin, and he refused to sin. For 30 plus years. And that entire time of living as a man, suffering everything man does, suffering every temptation, experiencing every temptation, and adamantly refusing to turn his back on his father and sin, perfected him. It made him the perfect high priest. The perfect one. Actually, it's going to make him the perfect sacrifice too. The sacrifice language isn't talked about here. That's future in Hebrews. But he's perfect. He's faithful. He's the definition of faithfulness. He was faithful from conception all the way to the cross and beyond. He never once sinned. And yet he's experienced all the temptations we have. And never gave in to any of them. This is why... He's able to sympathize with us. He experienced it too. He too was beset with weakness. The weakness that he was beset with wasn't his sin. It was the suffering of humanity. He was beset with that weakness. Just like the Old Testament priests, they were beset with their own weakness. He's beset with the weakness of everyone. And yet he did it perfectly. Without sin. And that qualified him more than anything to not only be the high priest like an Old Testament high priest but to be a merciful high priest. One to whom we can approach the throne to receive mercy in chapter 4 verse 14. A faithful high priest and one who will be able to propitiate the sins of the people. That will be explained in future chapters. in a way that the Old Testament priest could never do so. So yes, the author has, has made his case. He started to make his case. Jesus is qualified to be a high priest. Consider him as such. There's a whole lot more to talk about. Chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. But he's made his case. And next week, We'll move on into the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. Any uh, questions before I close it out? Uh, Jim, you have not talked much about Melchizedek, and he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yes. Who is Melchizedek, and what is that order? If you read verse 11, I'll explain why I'm not talking about Melchizedek. 
About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. <laughs> I, I heard everything you said, which was nothing. And he picks, he, he will get to Melchizedek in chapter 7. So I'm waiting to, I'm, I'm doing what the author's doing, and I'm waiting for chapter 7 to explain Melchizedek. Because he's doing it too. He's basically saying, I said Melchizedek, your eyes glazed over, and I'll get to it later. <laughs> All right? What we know about is in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Okay. <laughs> All right. I better close us out here. Um, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word to us through Hebrews. And I just pray that you would bless these people, bless each of us as we hold fast to the confession and draw near to you as our great high priest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.